Now let me mention about Brother Ronnie. I've known Ronnie uh, ever since he was uh, a teenager, 13, 14 years old when I showed up there at Milan. And God saved him when he was 16 years old and called to preach when he was 17 and ordained. And uh, after he was called to preach, he would always come up to me and say, now, are you sure you don't feel sick this morning? I mean, uh, are you going to be able to preach? If not, I, I'm, I'm, I can do it. I mean, he, he was ready to go. But uh, ever since God saved him, uh, he's had a heart to see people saved. Uh, he was a young teenager and just been saved. We started an evangelism explosion. Anybody remember evangelism explosion? You know, he was in evangelism explosion as a teenager. And the first uh, class that we had, we showed up and we had the training, we had the class, and then he was to be paired off with uh, two other people, with a leader, another person. And so we went out and we visited. When we got back, uh, Brother Ronnie came to me and he said, uh, I messed up. If you know Brother Ronnie, he's always bouncing off a wall somewhere. And he said, I, I messed up. And he said, I, I missed my team. I didn't get to go out. But he said, uh, while you all were gone, said there were two uh, African-American young men that were walking across our parking lot here. And I was able to lead both of them to, to Jesus. And he said, is that okay? I said, yes, uh, this coming Sunday night, come and teach it to our deacons. <laughs> Several years later, he was pastoring First Baptist Church in Trenton. And he noticed back in the congregation, there was a young African-American man. And when the service was over, this young man came up to him and said, uh, basically, do you, you remember me? And Brother Ronnie and Essence said, well, no, not really. He said, well, I was one of those two young boys that was walking across that parking lot there in Milan years ago, and you led me to Jesus. And that's been his life, if you know him. Uh, and God has used him to pastor churches, pastor a great church in Pace, Florida. That's outside Pensacola. They ran about a thousand. And uh, how many years ago? Seven or eight years ago now, Ronnie? Nine years ago. Wow. Nine years ago, he called me. And he said, I'm going to be leaving Florida, and I'm going to come back to, my, uh, to Jackson and start a church. I said, that's the most stupid thing I've ever heard in my life. I said, there's a church on every corner in Jackson, Tennessee. That's what I said, wasn't it? I said, uh, there's a church on every corner in Jackson, Tennessee. He said, yes. But he said, they're not reaching people. And he, his wife, his son, daughter moved back there to Jackson, started the church in their home. And now uh, they run somewhere 700 to 750 every Sunday. And then last year, they baptized over 250 people. And indeed, they're reaching people. And uh, they'll be, hopefully, this spring, uh, breaking ground for the first building. They, they don't even have a building. Uh, they're meeting an auditorium on Union University campus. Uh, but God's hand is on him. And he's got a heart for God. He goes to Ethiopia with us. And those people in Ethiopia, they love him like we love him. So, Brother Ronnie, we love you. Miss Tammy, we love you. And you come and preach God's word.
Thank you, brother. Amen, amen, amen. Are you glad you're here tonight? Come on, give the Lord a hand clap. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for letting me come. I'm so honored. I'm humbled to be in the midst of uh, these great men of God. Um, let me just say a couple of things. Dr. Don Witt is my hero. He's my pastor. He's my Paul in the ministry, and he's the greatest soul winner I've ever met in my entire life. He calls me. We talk twice a day every day. And he'll call me. I just led the woman at the hotel to Jesus. I just led the maid to Jesus. I, and he's just an inspiration to me to share my faith more and more every day. And I just want to tell you, Don, I love you so much. Uh, he's like uh, my father. And uh, I thank God for him. And Rosita, you're the best thing ever happened to him but Jesus. Amen. Thank you. I love you. so Tammy and I love you so much. And Tammy, I'll get to Tammy in a minute. And then Victor, I want to just honor you, brother. You're one of the greatest pastors. I, you have a pastor's heart. I wish I had a pastor's heart like you. Amen. Come on, church. Oh, I, I'm really not a, I'm an evangelist serving as a, a pastor. I'm a church planner, but that's a pastor, the pastor's heart. And uh, wow, I just, I appreciate you so much. Thank you, brother. And I'm going to miss you in Ethiopia this year, but uh, we'll try to do our best without you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he kind of backslid on us there a little bit, but I love you. Thank you, brother, for having me. And then really, again, do not miss tomorrow night. Wow, everything that Brother Don just said about Steve Gaines is true. Uh, when he, He's just an unbelievable preacher of the gospel, and God's hand is upon him. Now, I'm going to save the most important person to last, my wife. My wife is here tonight. I had my flight booked. I had my flight booked, and it was the only flight I could catch. And my flight, y'all know how this is, those of you that fly. For some reason, there was no flight direct from Memphis or Nashville to here. And so I had to fly. Literally, my flight was taken off at 530 uh, this morning, 530 this morning. I had to be at Memphis at around 4 o'clock, 3.30. And then we were going to fly all the way to New York City. And then I had 30 minutes, literally, and I was a little worried about that, 30 minutes to get from one plane to a connecting flight. 30 minutes, and I thought, wow. And then I got to go from there all the way to Houston. And so, uh, I don't know, in casual conversation, Tammy and I, she doesn't get to travel with me a lot anymore. Uh, she's raising another set of kids, my grandkids. And so, and so I said, baby, you, you didn't really want to, did you want to go with me? She said, uh, to, to Houston? To Victor, I said, yeah, you want to go? She said, I'd love to go. I'm like, yes. I canceled my flight, and uh, we drove. So we drove halfway yesterday after church, after a funeral, and then we drove the rest of the way this morning, and we've had a great time. But I had to promise her one thing. On the way back, she gets to spend whatever the honorarium is I get tonight. She gets it all. Just make it out to her. Lord, have mercy. Help me, Lord. Help me, help me, help me. Man, I, I really, really struggled with what to share tonight. I really, really did. I was an axe, and then I was here, and then I was there, and I, I just really struggled on what, um, what to share with you because the theme is when the glory falls, when the glory falls, when the glory, and glory falls when God's presence is amongst us. 
And we've seen a lot of glory falling in, in America. We've seen a lot of glory. God's been doing great things. And I think Brother Don mentioned yesterday about the, uh, the revival there in um, Asbury Revival. And, uh, and it's been spread all over the place. And, and really, in our own personal, my, my church, I've never done this before, but about four weeks ago, I called a pastor because God has been doing some great things in nine years. We've seen almost 2,500 people give their life to Jesus in nine less than nine years. And God has been doing great things from the outset of our church to now. But something, something has been different over the last two or three months. I mean, the glory has has fallen in our church. And so I called a pastor that I was supposed to be with in Nashville, and I was supposed to preach for him on a Sunday morning. I don't do many Sunday mornings, but he was like one of my, one of my Timothys. And so I've been helping him in ministry as a younger guy. And I just called him and I said, brother, you may hate me, but I, I, I can't come. He said, what do you mean? I said, I just can't come. God, God is doing something so powerful in our church. I, I just can't be out on a Sunday morning. I just can't come. And he understood. But I'm telling you, the glory, the glory of God is falling all across America. And I believe we are on the verge of a third great awakening. I want to just go to a passage that many of you know by heart, and we're going to jump around a little bit, but I, I, just, want, I, I just want to share with you a message that's heavy on my heart, and that is a passion for a move of God. A passion for a move of God. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. you know the verse. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, then, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. You believe it? Say amen. amen. Let's pray together one more time. Father in heaven, we thank you right now for your presence already in this room. God, we know you're about to do something special, and God, I pray that each and every one of us, including myself, Father, will open up ourselves tonight to hear whatever you have for us. Lord, I pray that you will convict hearts that need to be convicted. I pray, Father, that you would comfort those that need to be comforted. I pray that you would challenge those of us, God, that need to be challenged tonight. But God, do something that cannot be explained by the hands of men, but only by the power of God. God, move. And God, also, Father, we ask you tonight that your Holy Spirit and the precious, precious power of Jesus will be right there amongst those families that just lost children and loved ones there in Nashville, Tennessee today. God, be the great comfort to them. God, move in this place now. In Jesus' name, we pray. And all God's people said, I join with you and others to sing that great song that we have sung for years and years and years. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above. Church, I love America. Can I get a little patriotic something going on? I love America. Come on, somebody. It's, it's crazy It's our country has gotten. I love America. And as a citizen of this great country and the greatest country maybe that has ever existed, I'm proud to vote. I'm proud to pay my taxes. I don't want to pay too many. 
But I'm proud to pay my taxes. I'm even as old as I am. I'll even go off to war if need be. I love America. But because I love America, I'm deeply troubled. As historians have studied the past, they disagree on many, many things, but there's one thing that they do not disagree on, and that's over the conclusion that the great nations of yesteryear, watch this, the great nations of yesteryear that have fallen did not fall from outside forces, but the great nations of yesteryear fell from moral and spiritual decay and decline from within. And America finds itself on that same slippery slope that Rome found itself on, that Germany and the former Soviet Union and Babylon. Ladies and gentlemen, we need desperately, desperately a move of God in this country. And it must start in the churches, the local churches of America. Many of the conditions that existed in these other great nations that fail now exist in America. And we need an old-fashioned, come on somebody, an old-fashioned Holy Ghost revival in American churches today. Just as John 3.16 is the gospel in a nutshell, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is revival in a nutshell. It's, it, it talks about how we can see the glory fall, not only in our lives, but in our churches, but also in our families and in our great nation. But there's one of three things I believe that are imminent. One is revival. Pray, I pray for it every day. Number two is ruin. Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, said, if God doesn't send judgment upon America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. That's a mic drop. Bam. But the third is revival, ruin, or rapture. Or rapture. Jesus coming again for his church. I want to talk to you about a move of God. I want to talk to you about when the glory, when the glory of God falls upon an individual life, upon a church, upon a family, upon a nation. And so I want to give you, number one, the reality of our need for revival. Number one, the reality, if you're taking notes, number one, the reality of our need for revival. Now I want you to think with me for a moment about America's past. It's beyond debate, America was founded on biblical principles. Most of the great schools of early America were founded by those seeking to teach God's word. Harvard, yeah, I said Harvard. What? Harvard, yeah, Harvard. Harvard was started to train pastors. Princeton, Yale, Columbia, all started to teach Christianity. Listen to what some of the great men of God said about the Word of God in years gone by. George Washington said, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Abraham Lincoln said, the Bible is the best book that God has ever given to mankind. Woodrow Wilson said, a man has deprived himself of the very best there is who has deprived himself of intimate knowledge of the Word of God. Calvin Coolidge said, there is no other book with which the Bible can be compared. The original, the original colonies were founded for religious reasons. Jamestown was founded by people seeking freedom to worship God. A church was constructed there in Jamestown before they were there one month. This is how important the things of God were to yesteryear. 
The first act of the Puritans upon landing upon Plymouth Rock was to kneel and pray and dedicate their colony, watch this, watch this, to the glory of God. Then there was New Amsterdam and Delaware and Connecticut and North and South Carolina and Georgia, all founded for religious reasons. Pennsylvania was established by a devout, godly Quaker by the name of William Penn. This nation was born in a commitment to God and has been protected. Watch this. It's been protected and sustained by God. Our coins confessing God we trust. Our anthem acknowledges God. A picture of Moses was on the first American coin. Ladies and gentlemen, America was established from the things of God. Yeah, we've fallen a little far from that, haven't we? Look at our present today. Today, America is turning its back on God. We're breaking the Ten Commandments like crazy. We're putting rock stars and movie stars and athletic stars above the bright morning star. Everything today in 2023 for so many people seems so important. So much more important than the house of God. Ladies and gentlemen, we are on this same slippery slope and we need a move of God. We need God to move in our lives. We need God to move in our families. We need God to move in our relationships. We need God to move in our marriages, in our churches, in our country. We need revival. Number two, write this down. I want you to see the requirements for revival. If we need it, how do we have it? If we need it, how do we have it? This could be true for your own individual life, my life, our church's life, family's life, our nation's life. But we need revivals. What are the requirements? Let me give you several real quick. Number one, we must be saved. <laughs> we, must be, we must be saved. Vance Habner, that great preacher of yesteryear, said, we cannot have revival because we've not had vival. <laughs> you can't revive what's dead. Man, I've been to revival. I preach revival after revival after revival where people will come and they'll make a commitment at the altar and they'll get up and a day or two or three days later they're back to doing the same things. It may be that they didn't need to come and rededicate their lives. It may be they needed to come and dedicate their lives. So many have so watered down the message of the gospel that it's not life-changing. We need, he says, if my people, what is revival? If my people, if my people, revival is for the church. Revival is for the child of God. Revival is for God's people. And the question I have tonight is, do you know Jesus? Has there been a time and a place in your life? I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about singing in a choir. I'm not talking about coming to the house of God. I'm not even talking about giving a tithe. I'm talking about a real relationship with God. That's what happened to me. I told you about my story last year, how I was a religious young man. I was voted the vice president of the youth council because I was always there. But on Friday and Saturday night, I was out drinking. And man, I tell you, on October the 29th of 1983, I was 16 years of age. I was sitting on the front row because I had planned the event. Otherwise, I'd been in the back. 
I was on the front row, and all of a sudden, I mean, the Spirit of Almighty God began to convict my heart. And when he convicted my heart, listen, I ran to the altar, and I said, God, God, can you fix me? That was the extent of my theological vocabulary. God, can you fix me? God knows what a heart is saying. I just said, God, if you can fix me, I give you my life. Ladies and gentlemen, we must, number one, be saved. The old-time religion is, a, is the old-time relationship. Number two, we must hunger for revival. You got a hunger for it. You got a hunger for the things of God. We got a hunger for it. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. He says, if my people... We have perfected the programs in our Southern Baptist churches. Man, I've done them all. We got all the pro. Remember back in the day, man, we had Pack-a-Pew night. We had friend night. We had all-you-can-eat pizza night for the youth, and we had hot dogs. Why did the kids always get hot dogs? We got hot dog night for the kids. We got family night. We got this night. We got that night. We did everything under the sun to get people in the church. And man, I thank God. I do that still to this day. I thank God we ought to do everything we can, whatever it takes to get people on the sound of the gospel. But can I tell you, hot dog night, pizza night, pack a pew night is not revival. Revival is when God's people get on our face before a holy God and we say, God, I can't live unless I have your power. I can't make it another day, God, without you. We have to hunger for the things of God. And I'm not talking about a... I'm talking about a real hunger for God. I, I'm, 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 not, I'm not talking about seeking the hand of God. You know, many times the only time we pray is when we need something. God, give me, give me, give me, give me. God, give me, give me, give me. God, give me, give me. The only time we pray is we say, God, I'm in trouble. And we ought to pray when we're in trouble. But how about we just pray to God sometimes and watch this and just say, God, I don't need nothing. I just want you. I don't need anything today, God. I just want to glorify you. God, I don't need anything today. I just want to worship you. God, I don't need anything. I just want to praise you. God, I just want to thank you today. I don't need anything, God. God, you blessed me so much already. God, I don't need nothing. I just want your presence. I want you, God. You see, revival is going to come when we are hungry for the things of God, when our minds and our hearts and our souls are hungry for the things of God. Do you remember David said in Psalm 63, he said, my soul thirsts for you, oh God. Are we hungrier for God than we are for that Bucky's Burrito, hallelujah. I done told Tammy, I'm stopping at Bucky's on the way back. I'm getting me one of them burritos. What is that stuff called? Brisket. Lord, I'm going to have a Baptocostal spell. But do we love God more than we love things? Do we love God more than we need water? Do we love God more than we want food? Do we love God more than anything else in the world? Are we hungry for God? Many of the New Testament 
heroes, disciples, apostles were so hungry for God that it cost them their lives. Wow, think about it. Matthew had a spear run through his body because of his hunger for God. Mark, when he went to Alexandria, the Egyptians there were so jealous of his power, they took Mark and they drug him throughout the streets of Alexandria behind a horse until the majority of skin was scraped off his body. And then they took Mark and they threw him in a dungeon. And the next morning they took his body out and they burned him. Why? Because he was hungry for God. I want to tell you, even in America today, if we're hungry enough for God, we may pay the price. Are you willing to pay the price? I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to sit down. I'm going to worship King Jesus for the rest of my life. You got Peter who was crucified upside down. You got Paul who was beheaded. You've got John who was boiled in a cauldron of boiling oil. He miraculously survived. They exiled him to an island called Patmos, and he gave us that great book, the book of Revelation. But my, my friend, these great men of God, they suffered because they were hungry for God. We must hunger for revival. But number, number three, we must pray. We must pray. I never will forget I was pastoring one church and we had prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Y'all remember what prayer meeting? Some people had changed it from prayer meeting to Bible study and from Bible study to groups and this. We changed everything. But I remember I thought, okay, okay, if we're going to have prayer meeting on Wednesday night, guess what? We're going to pray. Well, guess what? Our attendance went from, from like 200 to about 50. Well, preacher, I wanted a Bible study tonight. Well, you didn't do nothing with the one I gave you Sunday. You know, in our Baptist churches, we have so much. We give people so much. We are constantly feeding. They don't have time to apply what we give them. And I said, no, no, we're not going to have a Bible study. We're going to pray. We're going to get before the face of God. We're going to fall on our hands and knees, and we're going to pray. People want to do everything else in the church but pray. Little prayer, little power. More prayer, more power. Much prayer, much power. James 5, 16 says the effectual fervent, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Paul calls it the travail of the soul. The effectual fervent prayer. It's the same word, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's the same word that is used when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying. The Bible says he prayed. He prayed to his father so hard, so passionately that the capillaries under his skin burst and blood began to come through his pores. Man, I tell you, today in our prayer times, we pray so little. And we pray with so little heart and sometimes in our prayers. I'm telling you, if revival's gonna come, we gotta get before God. Church, we gotta get before God. You believe it's amen. I thought I lost you there for a second. Y'all still here? We gotta pray. Oh, friend, we, we have to pray. One of my favorite preachers of all time was Bailey Smith. I love Bailey. He, well, I tell you, he was famous for his sermon, The Wheat and the Tares. Bailey Smith was a pastor <clears throat> before he became an evangelist. He was a pastor out in, uh, I think, Oklahoma. And while he was a pastor in Oklahoma, his church was just continuing to grow, and, and they were leading the, the local association in baptisms. They were leading the state in baptisms. They were leading, they were leading the, the convention, the Southern Baptist Convention in baptisms. I mean, this church was growing numerically year after year after year after year. They did not have one year before that was that one year that was lower than the year before. I mean, this church was exploding. He got so much attention that the 
the, 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 the news came, and, and, and one of, the, one of the, uh, the news folks asked him, said, Dr. Smith, Dr. Smith, your church keeps growing. You guys are leading the association, the state, and the, and the national convention, the Southern Baptist Convention in baptisms. What's your secret? It's what he said. He said, it's not pastors. He said, we come and go. He said, it's not ministers of music. He said, they, they come and go. He said, you know why God is so blessing our church? Because every single Sunday morning at 7 a.m., every single Sunday morning at 7 a.m., the men of our church gather around this worship center, and they hold hands, and they anoint this place in Holy Ghost prayer. That's the secret. We do everything but pray. We have serve teams in our church, and one of our serve teams is a prayer team. You know what they do? Let me tell you what they do every Sunday. People often ask me, he said, Ronnie, how, how y'all having so many people saved? How, many, how, why, how can you have so many baptisms? We are having 20 to 25 first-time guests every single Sunday. We give T-shirts away to every first-time guest. We going broke. We have, we have all these first-time guests, and people are coming, and people are being saved. And, and Listen, I want to tell you, if you preach the gospel, and I know your pastor does, when first-time guests come that don't know Jesus, they're going to hear the gospel. They're going to get under the sound of the gospel, and they will get saved. You just got to invite them. You just got to get them here. And, 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 and people ask me all the time, hey, hey, how y'all seeing so many people get saved? I said, I'll tell you why. Because we have a prayer team that comes and prays over every single chair. We don't have pews. We got chairs, every single chair. They lay their hand on the chair. And God, who's ever in this chair, 900 to 1,000 chairs every Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning. Oh, thank you, ma'am. God bless you. You are the best. See, Brother Don, can, well, he almost can do this. <laughs> Victor Kane, I've never seen such good hair. I'm so jealous of people. Where's the man, that other man, and talk to a big tall guy? No, not you. You're bald. Not Josh. Where, there you are right there. Look at this man. Is that real? <laughs> that man got some hair, man. I'm so jealous. Wow. I have no idea where I was. But our prayer team, our prayer team they, they, they lay their hands on every chair, all thousand chairs, and then they come to the altar, and they pray over the altar, and they say, God, save who's in this chair. God, do business in this altar, and God moves. Why? Because people pray. We must pray, but also we must hate sin. Mm. If my people which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And watch this, watch this. And turn. Remember, this passage was to the church, to the children. Will turn from their, what? Wicked. Y'all don't even want to say the word, do you? Wicked ways. How many of you know sometimes we can be wicked? How many of you know sometimes, is anybody perfect in this place? Come on, anybody in here perfect? Because if you are, we're about to cast that demon out of you right now. There's nobody in here. We all make, we all make dumb decisions. Sometimes we, we are one decision away from just being D-U-M-B, dumb. Me and Cl we're all that way. And we, we need to understand we got to hate sin. 
We gotta hate sin. We've been so conditioned. I remember back in the day, it was a sin to go to the movie theater. It was a sin to do this, it was a sin to do that, it was a sin to do everything. You know what happens in society? We go to the opposite end. We overcompensate. Now it's okay to do everything. Ah, it doesn't matter. We see pastors and Christians posting things. I'm like, I can't believe you posted that. We've become so desensitized to sin. We really have. And, and I believe that if revival's going to come, we gotta, we got to really hate sin. I'm not, I'm not talking about the sin of the pimp or the prostitute. I, I'm not talking about that sin. I'm talking about my sin of impatience. Don't you say amen. I'm talking about my sin of a lack of discipline. I love white chocolate macadamia nut cookies. I can't say no. I'm talking about my sin. I'm talking about your sin of pride or ego, or gossip, whatever it is. But we're quick to look out in the world. Oh, man. Them people cray-cray. And we're quick to call out their sin. And sometimes we forget that we're sinners too. Sometimes we can be so self-righteous. I love Hebrews 1.9. Hebrews 1.9 says, love God and hate sin. We don't have any problem loving God, but sometimes we have a problem hating sin. Matter of fact, if I were to ask you tonight, how many of you love God? I guarantee you, everybody, would, everybody who's a Christian in here would raise your hand. Absolutely, I love God. But the question is, how many of us really, really hate sin? Ladies and gentlemen, sin is what destroys marriages. Sin is what destroys churches. Sin destroys pastors. Sin destroys nations. We got to hate sin, our own personal sin. We have become guilty of categorizing our sins. That's a bad sin. Oh, that's a real bad one over there. But this one, ah, you know, it's not so bad. All sin put Jesus on the cross. Charles Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers that ever lived. Spurgeon told this story. He made it up to make a point. Spurgeon said, could you imagine a poisonous snake, a venomous snake crawling into a home? Mom and dad in the backyard, the little one-year-old down the hall, to the left in his little bed in his crib, sleeping, sound asleep. He said, could you imagine that snake crawling into that home, that venomous snake going down that hallway and then finally turning left and crawling up into that crib and crawling up next to that little baby. And then that little baby wakes up and makes a sudden move like babies do and starts crying for mom and dad. And all of a sudden Spurgeon said, could you imagine that snake with those poisonous fangs striking that little one-year-old baby boy. He said, could you imagine that baby beginning to have convulsions and that little baby, what a terrible picture, but that little baby foaming at the mouth and his eyes bugging out of his head until finally that little baby boy dies. Spurgeon said, could you imagine that daddy taking that little boy or taking that snake to a taxidermist and getting that snake stuffed and putting marbles in his eye sockets for eyes and rouge on his face and putting it on red velvet and displaying it in a walnut frame in the foyer of his home on the mantel 
so that when people would come over, they would look with, uh, with astonished eyes and they would say, why do you display this snake in public view? And he said, could you imagine that father saying, because that's the snake that killed my son. You know what Spurgeon said? Absolutely not. He said, every man in this room and every man in this room and every woman in this room, you'd find your garden hole, you'd find a shovel, you'd find something as fast as you could, and you'd corner that snake, and you would beat that snake, and you'd chop that snake up into a hundred, no, into a thousand, no, into ten thousand pieces. Why? Because that snake killed your little boy. And then Spurgeon said this. If we're not going to be proud of what killed that little boy, why are we so proud of what killed God's boy? Sin. I know it's strong, isn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, revival comes when sin breaks our hearts. <laughs> I had a guy. I've got some sons of thunder. I was one of Don's sons of thunder. and I, I got some guys now. We have a small group just for my men that have surrendered to preach under my ministry. We call it the sons of thunder. And I got one guy, and he may be watching tonight. Ben, I love you, brother. His name's Ben. And uh, boy, he had a tough life. He grew up. He gave his testimony not long ago. His father didn't want him. His mother was in a mental institution, in and out of a mental institution. She could not take care of him. His father didn't want him. His mother couldn't take care of him. He grew up, and he was addicted to everything you could be addicted to. He was addicted to everything you could be addicted to. God called him to preach, and he kept falling back into this addictive lifestyle, even after pastoring. He didn't think he'd ever pastor again, but can I tell you, friend, listen to me, listen to me closely. He may not pastor again, but he's going to continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, I, I, I think about Ben, I think about Peter. Peter who denied he even knew Jesus and then God chose him to preach the message at Pentecost. Aren't you glad our God is a God of a second chance? Ben was telling this story. Nobody wanted me. Life of addiction. I've got a church full of people that... <laughs> Lives of addiction. Some of them God has completely delivered, and other he delivered Sunday, and he's got to deliver again this Sunday. Some people it happens like that, and other people it's just a, it takes a while. But they get their bend. He's been clean. He's serving the Lord. He's one of the most brilliant minds. He is a teacher of the gospel. He's a teacher of the Bible. He loves the Word of God. I've talked to him about writing a book. He's going to write a book. I'm going to get that information from you about me. I'm not, I just probably can't write a book. I'll have to get a ghostwriter. <laughs> I told Ben, you need to write a book. But Ben called me. He, he's a waiter at a, at a restaurant. And Ben called me the other day and Ben said, he was almost in tears. He said, Pastor, I've blown it. I thought, oh, he fell off the wagon. Oh. He said, I've blown it, I've blown it, I've blown it. Let me just say this. The closer you are to God, the more mature you get with God, the more sensitive you are about your sin. He said, I've blown it. I said, Ben, what are you talking about? What'd you do, man? What'd you do? He said, I was at work and a guy got on my nerves and I smarted off to him. I'm like, 
But you know what? God so moved in his life over the last two years. He's been clean for God so, maybe more. God so moved in that even little things like that break his heart. He's experiencing revival in his life every day. But we got to hate sin. We just have to hate sin. And the question is, do you hate sin? Number next, we must humble ourselves. Boy, I tell you what. We got so many Christians that can strut sitting down. They just got an air. I got it. What does humility do? It allows us to be real. In our church, when we have our favorite time of the service is the invitation time. At invitation time, half our church is at the altar every Sunday. I preach on giving. They're at the altar. I preached on the spirit of excellence this past Sunday. We had seven people say the spirit of excellence, and the altar was packed full. Our people love. That's why they come to church. They love to spend time at the altar. Why? Because they just want to be real before God. And humility makes us real before God. Don talked to you about the Asbury revival. Did you mention the one in the 70s also? Amen. Was that a dog? Hallelujah. I love this church. You know how the 1970 revival began? It began because a professor got up. He was giving a chapel sermon. And he said to the students, I can't preach to you today because I'm a phony. I've never truly been saved. And then all of a sudden, students began to pop up, and one said, Preacher, preacher, I've been cheating on your exams. And all of a sudden, students began to pop up and humble themselves and confess their sin. I said, that that revival started in 1970, February the 3rd. It did not end until June the 8th. Everywhere those college students from Wilmore, Kentucky went, from February the 3rd until June the 8th, revival broke out. Why? Because one man, one man got honest before God. We don't want nobody to know we're not perfect. Can I tell you? We're not perfect. We got problems. Go ahead and nudge your neighbor and say, yep, you got more problems than I do. We all have problems. We're all messed up. We must humble ourselves. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that word confess means to say the same thing about our sin as God does. God says it's sin. Yes, God, this is sin in my life. I give it to you. Humility. I was, uh, I was preaching a meeting. It was a youth meeting. It was about 500 students under a humongous uh, wooden pavilion thing out in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. It was a huge church of God campgrounds. It was a Baptist camp, but it was a Church of God campgrounds. And so it was, must have been anointed. Amen. I remember I was preaching that night, and every night when I got through preaching, people would get saved, kids would come. But then the, one of the youth pastors who was leading the thing, he would sit on a stool, and he'd give the kids an opportunity to give a testimony. So I'd preach for an hour. We'd have a whole invitation. Then the kids would come give testimonies, and it lasts about two more hours. You know how that goes. I never will forget one night. I, had, I was done, and uh, it was a sharp-looking young man. He was 17, 18 years of age. 
I mean, he was an all-American looking guy. He was the quarterback of the local football team. He was uh, going to Division One to play. He was everything. I mean, he, he all the girls wanted to date him. He had the reputation of being a good guy, good Christian guy. This was his reputation. Matter of fact, the parents so trusted him, they let their kids, their middle school kids, go with him wherever he went, and he would carry them to different youth events, et cetera, et cetera. Here he comes down the aisle. And he comes and he says, can I say a few words? And he had tears rolling down his face. And he began to weep. And he said, y'all think you know who I am? Parents, you let your kids ride with me. But I got a problem. Oh, he's open and honest and transparent. James talks about this in James 5. He said, I got a problem. I need you to pray for me. I'm hooked on internet pornography. And all of a sudden, students begin to get out of their seats. And they gather around him and they begin to pray over him. And he gets right with God and he confesses it and God delivers him. And revival broke out in that place like I haven't seen many times before. Why? Because one young man got honest with God. We must humble ourselves. I'm almost done. The last thing I want you to see, and remember this, number one, the reality of our need for revival. Number two, the requirements for revival. Number three, what are the results? What are the results when glory comes down? What are the results? The Bible says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, then, say then. Then, then, then. You see, there's a condition there. These things must happen first, but when they do, then, 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 I will hear from heaven and I will, what? Forgive their sins and heal their land. Oh, our land needs a healing. What's the results? When revival comes, it's going to be God's way. And he's not going to give us a chance to vote on it. Uh-oh. You know how it is. We Baptists, we vote on everything. From the color of the paper towels to the curtains. When revival comes, we're not going to have a chance to vote on it. It's going to come, and it's going to be God's way. Vance Havner said, if Baptists knew what revival was, they'd stop praying for it. Why? Because it changes us. And nobody likes change but a baby with a wet diaper. It changes us. What are the results of revival? We've put God in a box, church. So oftentimes we've said, God, you can do this, you can do that, you can do this. God, you can do this, you can do that, you can do this. But God, that's all you can do. Who are we to tell God what God can do? And can I tell you, God will never do anything contrary to his word. Never, never, ever, ever. But I believe that God wants to do a great work in our lives, and he wants to do something that's going to blow our minds. I believe that God wants to do something that cannot be explained by the hands of men, but only by the power of God. Ladies and gentlemen, God is still in the saving business. God is still in the delivering business. God is still a healing God. 
Amen? Now, if I was in the Pentecostal church, they'd been hanging from the chandeliers right there. Woo! Do you believe that? God is in the saving marriage business. God can do it. We got to let God be God. What's the result? One of the biggest results of revival is evangelism. Now watch this closely. You can have evangelism without revival, but you cannot have revival without evangelism. What I'm telling you is, listen to this, when glory falls, the burden rises. When glory falls, when the power of God falls, listen, the, all of these revivals, this last Asbury revival that spread to Lee College and all these other universities, get to, guess what those students did? They didn't just sit up in the sanctuary and lift their hands and shout amen and have a holy spell. No, they left there and they told everybody they came in contact with about Jesus. When revival comes, when the Spirit of God falls, when glory comes... You want everybody to know it. I close with this. Several years ago, several years ago, way back, there was a preaching team, E.C. Solomon and Ike Reynolds. Ike Reynolds was the musician because back in the day, the, the, the worship team and the, the evangelistic team traveled together, you know. He was the, he got up and he would begin to sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. And then E.C. Solomon would get up and preach for God so loved the world. And, and then they would sing Just As I Am, the greatest invitation song ever God has ever given. They'd go from town to town to town and God was using them greatly. They came to one little town and, uh, <laughs> It was back in the days when they didn't have air conditioner. Anybody old enough to remember they opened the windows on the side? Y'all ain't old enough to remember that. It's back in those days. Well, they scheduled this meeting. It was in a small town, a little white frame church. And Ike Reynolds got up and sang, and E.C. Solomon got up and preached, and they did it Sunday morning, and they did it Sunday night, and they did it Monday night, and they did it Tuesday night, and the Holy Spirit of God came. The Holy Spirit of God came, but very few people came. And so, so E.C. Solomon and Ike Reynolds, at the conclusion of that service, they said, we got to do something to stir some interest in this meeting. And they went to the pastor, and they said, Pastor, tell us. Pastor, who's the meanest man in town? Why, why do you want to know? We want to go win him to Jesus. Oh, you can't do that. Well, what are you talking about, Pastor? What do you mean? What do you mean we can't win? Yeah, you just you just can't. You don't know what you're asking me, men. You you just can't do that. But but, Pastor, why? We we want to go win the win, the meanest man in town to Jesus, and maybe if he gets saved, it'll stir a spark, and and God will use it to to bring revival to this town. Who's the meanest man in town? He said, "You you're asking me something I don't need to tell you." They said, "What are you talking about, Pastor? Who's the meanest man in town?" He said, his name is Big John Wakefield. He's the blacksmith in town. But you got to understand something. A few years ago, he murdered the husband of the pianist in our church. And he got off on a technicality, and he never spent one day in jail. 
And if that man gets saved and he comes to our church, I don't know what the men of our church, I don't know what the men of our church will do. So where's he work? Downtown around the corner, blacksmith shop. That next morning, he sees Sodom and Ike Reynolds went to the blacksmith shop and they introduced himself to John Wakefield. And before long, this man was a giant of a man. He had arms like tree trunks and legs like branches. He had a humongous barrel chest, giant shoulders. And before long, they had, they had a big old John Wakefield on the ground, kneeling, humbling himself, giving his life to Jesus. Word got around town. Big John got saved. And the next night, Big John was coming to church. And he was going to confess. He was going to tell the whole world that he got saved. Remember what I said? The attendance was just mediocre all week long. Well, guess what? When that service time came, it was packed out. Not only was it packed out inside, standing room only, the windows were all open on the side of the church, and people were looking in every single window from the front to the back. Why? Because they wanted to see what was going to happen when Big John came to church. Sure enough, the service began. Music starts playing. Ma'am, where are you? You play the piano? Will you come play something for me softly? Big John walked in the back door. He was a few minutes late. He walked in. I mean, he's a giant man. Here he comes. He finds a seat because people just scoot over. Ike Reynolds gets up, and Ike Reynolds sings, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. E.C. Solomon preaches, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen closely, listen closely. And then the invitation is given. And Ike Reynolds begins to play and sing, Just as I am, without one plea. The pastor's standing up front, not knowing what's about to happen, Big John got out of his seat. He could barely fit down the aisle. Here he comes. And he takes the pastor's hand. Watch this, watch this. He takes the pastor's hand. And he said, Pastor, I met Jesus this morning, and I want the world to know that I've been saved. About that time, about that time, the piano stopped playing. Remember, he murdered the pianist's husband and got off on a technicality. Her name was Maggie. Maggie got up from the piano. She was about 85 years of age. She could barely walk, but she got up from the piano, and she walked over the best she could. Nobody knew what was about to happen, and she reached up. I can only think of my granny, and she reached up with those arthritis-ridden hands and, and, and that palsy in her hands, and she reached up, and she grabbed the face of the man that killed her husband, and she pulled him, his face down and planted a kiss on his cheek. And then she went back to the piano, and she began to play Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. You can only imagine the commotion. After the service was over with, all of the ladies ran to the front. They ran to Maggie, 
And they said, Maggie, Maggie, how could you do it, Maggie? How could you do it? She said, do what? They said, Maggie, how could you kiss the face of the man that killed your husband? And Maggie said, oh, I didn't. That man died when Big John got saved. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. When the glory falls, we'll want to reach people that we don't normally want to reach. When the glory falls, we'll, we'll want to reconcile with those people that hurt us 25 years ago. When the glory falls, God will do things that we would never imagine him doing. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. I don't know about you. Before I die, I'm 55 years of age, and I know for some of y'all, I'm a young whooper snapper. Others of you, I'm old. But before I die, I pray, God, before I die, I want to see you move in power. And we're seeing glimpses of it. We're seeing sparks of revival. All around us, we are seeing sparks of revival. Oh, how our nation needs a baptism of holiness. Oh, how our marriages need Christ, not as the co-pilot, but as the pilot. Oh, how our families need men, men, husbands, fathers to stand up and say, I am the man of God. I will lead my family. We need evangelists and pastors who will unapologetically preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if it means that we're drugged throughout the streets of Alexandria, even if it means we're crucified upside down on a cross, even if it means we're exiled to an island called Patmos, even if it means we're ridiculed and unfriended on Facebook, who cares? I get unfriended by five people every single week. So if you want to friend me, just send it. I'll get to it eventually. Five at five. Five at five. Why? People don't, people don't like us standing for, you know what though? We're going to change the world by standing for Jesus. Do you want revival? Are you hungry for revival? I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, please. Every person in this place. I want you to look at me for a moment. Two things. Number one, do you know Jesus? Has there ever been a time and a place in your life where you ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior? Has there ever been a time? If you've never met Jesus, you can, be, you can meet him tonight. If you're willing to repent of your sins and turn your life to Christ, you can meet him tonight. The gospel has been preached in and out of this message. Jesus is the only way. Republican, Democrats, not going to change the world. You go vote. But a politician won't change the world. An elephant or a, whatever's the other one, a donkey. Not going to change America. Jesus is going to change America. Jesus is going to fix your marriage. Jesus is going to help you in your finances. Jesus is going to get you through. We always tell people, hey, you need to get saved because you might die. Can I tell you, you need to get saved because you just might live. You can't live without Christ. Jesus doesn't promise us, listen to me, he doesn't promise us that life will be easy, but he does promise us when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, when all hell comes to our doorstep, 
Jesus said, I will strengthen you. I will carry you. I will be there for you. I'll help you through it. If you don't know Christ tonight, give your life to him. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you're in this room right now and you're in this room right now, and you'd like to be saved. You say, Pastor, I don't know how to be saved. The Bible says, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. You say, how do I call? I want to help you. I can't be saved for you, but I can lead you in a sinner's prayer. And if you're sincere when you pray this to God, God will save you. If you're not sincere, please don't say it. It's just words. But if you'd like to be saved tonight, you'd like to give Jesus your life, pray this prayer with me. You don't have to pray it out loud. You can pray it silently in your heart. But pray it right now. Say, dear God. Come on, pray it. Dear God, I know you love me. Jesus, I know you died for me. I know you rose again the third day. Please forgive me of my sins. I turn my back on my sin. And I turn my life to you. Save me tonight, Lord Jesus. Save me. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you prayed that. I want to pray a general prayer over you. I'm not coming to you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to pray a prayer, a general prayer over you. If you prayed that prayer just now with me, on the count of three, lift your hand up. One, two, three, hold them up high. I prayed that prayer. Anyone? Anyone at all? All right, everybody look at me. We're going to have a time of invitation. You know what we're going to do? We're going to seek his face. We're going to pray. We're going to humble ourselves before a holy God. And we're going to say, God... You be God. Send revival in my life, in my church, in my family. I'm going to ask you all over this place. So you say, man, I can't get down there. If I do, I'll never get up. Then I want to ask you to just come down here and stand. Or come down here and sit on the altar. God knows your heart. You know what we need tonight? We need dozens of people. Not only in this church, but every church in America. Seeking the face of God. Do you want revival? It's got to start in my life and in your life on our face before a holy God. God's let your glory fall. Let your glory fall. If you need somebody to pray with, your pastor will be down here too. I want to pray. When I say amen, they're going to begin to sing and play. And I want to ask you all over this place to come. I hope that nobody's left in their seat. I hope my precious sister just have to sing a solo up here because we need to be on our face before God. Father in heaven, Lord, this is where the rubber hits the road. God, we need you tonight. We need you in our churches, in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our finances, in our country. We need you, God. And God, we've got to be willing tonight to humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways. God, move. Move tonight in this place as your people fall on their faces before you. God, move right now, right now, right now. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Would you join me at the altar tonight? Come on, let's just pray to God. Come on, you come. Come on, all over this place. God send revival. God send revival. God send revival. This is a ministry of First Baptist Church located at 1700 Milam Street, Columbus, Texas.